everybody, welcome back to The Jig Is Up, and today I have with me Joanne Bissett from the community of Chico out in Quebec. How are you doing today, Joanne? Hi, I'm great, thanks. How are you? Good. Hey, so for our listeners who aren't familiar with um, our previous conversations, can you tell us whereabouts uh, are you from? So I'm in uh, a region that they today call L'Anodière. Um, it's unceded territory, as uh, most of southern Quebec is. Um, it is also a territory that's disputed by um, the Eskemek, the Abenaki, and the Wendat people. And I think I need to acknowledge that. And uh, there was a community historically of the Algonquins in Three Rivers, which is about uh, 45 minutes away from uh, where I'm sitting right now. Perfect. So kind of an in-between, historical in-between community and territory. Yes, very much so. Actually, um, uh, the, 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 the community in itself, like the, the, the core of the community is in the islands. They're called the islands of Berti. They're about 100 islands in the middle of the St. Lawrence. And... Uh, this was traditionally a summer meeting ground where all these communities came and met and, uh, uh, you know, did exchanges of their, their goods. So it wasn't, um, you know, it was very fluid as for the people that, that, that came and visited. And I suspect before the, the you know, France set up a community there, I, I suspect that uh, there is a reason why First Nations didn't reside there permanently, which is uh, the incredible flooding that occurs in the islands every, you know, 10 years or so. Interesting. So a great so, place to meet, to trade, to, you know, uh, to do that, that kind of business, not, not a, a real permanent settlement area. Yeah, I, I really think so. And actually the, the, the town of Ilzupo, which many families would would recognize, um, you know, if you if you go back Red River and you look at your um, if you look at your Dubois ancestors, if you look at your Belrose ancestors, if you look at your even the Riel ancestors, Delorme, uh, Legimodier, there's a lot of families that originate from there. Uh, this town actually had to move straight across the island that is on because of a very, very bad flooding that actually killed several villagers in the middle of the night when, um, when an ice um, embacco, like an ice uh, dam, had, uh, had just, uh, I don't know how to say this in English, but it, it had let go in the middle of the night and flooded and, and killed many of the residents of the community. Wow, that sounds pretty traumatic, and I see why it's not a permanent residence. Can you give us a little bit of the history of the uh, Métis people in, in your home area? Sure. Um, so, you know, there's been very little research done, and I'm not, you know, by no means a, a researcher per se. I just carry the family history that, that you know, was passed down to me. We've always identified as Métis in my family. Um, and, uh, you know, the stories were, were, were never, it was oral based 
history. You know, but with computers today and with the ability to, you know, I was I was given my great uncle's notes and his own research. He died actually last year at the age of 99. Um, and he had like all a slew of history. So what it seems is that uh, for the most part, there were uh, families in um, in the 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 community of Poitiers. Uh They were Algonquin, but more than that, there was also Abenaki there, and there was also some Wendat families. Um, they seem to have gone there uh, to be educated, and also they had converted to Christianity. And uh, for, for, you know, unknown reasons, well, we have the, the, the contract now, but uh, the land was taken away from them after the passing of the, the chief uh, that was there. Uh, the French took back the land and gave it to the Jesuits. Uh, at the same time and on the same document as they removed the land from the Wendat nation to give back to the Jesuits. So we kind of dispersed um, and established ourselves in communities called uh, Yamashish, Masquinonge, Ilzupa, um, and, and, you know, as time went by further north, uh, you know, up to St. Gabriel de Brandon and all in the region of the Matawini, they call. So that's in a nutshell. This is, you know, as we're finding documents, uh, these documents are actually confirming the oral history that we had. I do always find it funny how often that happens. We have a very... Uh, you know, colonial mindset a lot of times where we believe only, you know, the written word, the the actual paper document is anything that can be trusted, right? It's the only accurate source. And what I find is very funny is over time we have these, you know, paper documents that come out and all that really happens is it reaffirms our oral traditions and our oral histories. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there was a wave, there is currently a wave of discrediting oral history, right? Uh, you know, I don't remember ever being incredulous at, you know, what was shared. Like, we would have gatherings and, and there'd be stories shared. And, and that's just my family. So if you put all the families together, a lot of the stories overlap. And, and you know, theoretically, that should be enough. Or when I was growing up, that was enough. But, you know, uh in the last, I don't know, 30 years or, or whatnot, uh, that's no longer enough, right? And uh, and incidentally, it, it's it's kind of without accusing, but it's accusing oral historians of being liars and putting the emphasis on on you know non-indigenous academics. Well, I've I've found that you're exactly right. As as Indigenous people and Métis people have become more involved in the legal system and and the proceedings that go on there, we've had to rely more heavily on physical, you know, paper documentation and histories and and the written word. And I think it has really marginalized in a lot of regards um, oral tradition keepers to the point where we look at them as as fictional, as fun fairy tales of what might have been or could have been, not necessarily as accurate retellings of, you know, historical events and community. Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and as 
as our, our knowledge keepers are passing, you know, it's being replaced by, you know, really rewritten history. Well, in a lot of ways, the the details, the the flourishments, the the personal touches that come with oral tradition, is being reduced to only the uh, documentation that we can provide. And I think it's as much narrower, uh, a lot less rich tapestry of of uh, especially Métis history. Oh yes, very much so. Like there's a lot being lost, and you know, one of the things that we we you know, we, we fall on or, or, or the lack of is, you know, when you, when you ask, like, I still have questions, like how, when the seniorial system uh, was abolished in 1855, you know, how were the lands granted, right? And these were lands that, that we had been there since the 1600s. So in that space of 200 years, the people that had already been there were somehow granted, um, you know, freehold ownership of these old river locks. How did that happen in Quebec? We don't know because every time we try to find that information, you know, we're told, oh, well, you know, uh, those records burned or they were in a flood or et cetera, et cetera, which is all entirely possible. However, it's, it's, it happens way too often. Like, I mean, what really happened to these records? How do we not understand how the lands were 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 transformed from river lots to to freehold? Yeah, I think that's. I mean, we see that right across Canada in in every jurisdiction. Really, is the inability of the crown in whatever form it takes, whether it's you know municipal, federal, or provincial. They don't really have any deed, you know, other than their self-proclaimed legalese. And it is interesting that in, we live in an age where everything is based on documentation. Everything that Indigenous people have to fight with in the legal system has to be done with a proper paperwork. However, when those powers, whether they're provincial or whatever, have to prove how they got ownership of the land, well, yeah, that all got lost. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting, and if you look at the timeline, um, it it makes it even more interesting. So, you know, after 1763, there was like you know a period of 50 years where the laws didn't really change that affected the people here in what was Lower Canada. Um, however, then you see that they they moved in, like I said, 1855 to remove the seigneurial system. But then they realized, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, indigenous people uh, to whom they had originally, before even the Indian Act, removed their certain of their rights, some of their rights. So all of a sudden you had a bunch of river lots with a bunch of indigenous people there, um, and they couldn't legally own the, these river lots they had been on for over 200 years, right? So, you know, you see thereafter, 1857, they actually passed the Gradual Civilization Act. And it's quite shocking to read this act in its original form, because it basically said, you know, if a savage can um, uh, read or speak English or French, had no debts, 
and was considered of good character, they were automatically enfranchised. So it wasn't a choice. It was like, okay, buddy, you've been living here now for 200 years. Uh, your kids went to school. Uh, you know, you run the mill here. So poof, you find yourself, uh, you know, no longer being indigenous. Yeah, and it's very funny when you look back at, at uh, the history of Métis people, how many languages did an average Métis person speak? You know, they probably at least spoke English or French and several other Indigenous languages as well. So that it's an easy thing to say, oh, well, because you speak French or English, boom, you, you're automatically, you know, enfranchised. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And a lot of people, e- even up to my grandfather's generation, he was, I wouldn't say fluent, but he could uphold conversations in in several indigenous languages so it's it's uh it's a very recent loss right um and and language was learned at home right so so if the first nation uh woman who who was married to a voyageur if we go back in time uh of course that would have been the language she would have transmitted to her children Right. And so on and so forth. So given the Enfranchisement Act and the impact that that's had, where people by default were just then registered uh, in Quebec as French, how do you think that that's been impactful in a lot of the conversations regarding uh, Eastern Métis today in Quebec? Oh, that's a rough question. Uh, Well, first of all, I, I... I don't see that many people that will claim their Métis identity. There's a lot of them that are satisfied with simply being Québécois. Um, so, you know, whatever fears that there is, because, I mean, self-identification is used as a as a bad thing. Like, it's been turned into, you know, some meaningless uh, uh, culture or, or appro- identity appropriation. But the fact is, self-identification was put in there for people that did not want to return to Indigenous governance and Indigenous ways. So there's a lot more people that will choose to not self-identify. They actually feel more comfortable with you know, this quote-unquote Québécois culture as opposed to Indigenous culture. Because we, you know, I, mean, I think we spoke about this uh, the last time we, we we spoke together. I mean, Quebec had a ministry of colonization up until 1972. So there was a lot of um, indoctrinization uh, against Indigenous people. So I'm not surprised to see the level of racism here um, you know, the level of, of um, people that, that may have Indigenous roots just not want to identify as Indigenous uh, simply because of, you know, over 100 years, 120 years of, of indoctrinization of, you know, what a colonist should be like. 
Well, and I think it's very difficult as well. Like when you're looking at the West in, in comparison, there's there's a, a bit different history. There's enfranchisement for sure in the Western provinces, but not nearly, I think, as a prolonged a period as there was, especially in Quebec. With in, in the francophone situation, is is a very different feel to it in in the Quebec situation versus, like, say, Manitoba or out here in Alberta, um, and. Given that, how do you feel, or how, what's the perception, I guess, since the last time we've talked, um, about this idea of huge numbers of people now claiming Métis identity in the province of Quebec? I, listen, I, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, um, really, I... I no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't see it every day. I'm really interested because this year will be, I believe, the next census. Last time was in 2016. And here's, here's a few numbers of the reality in Quebec, right? If we look at First Nation, uh, First Nation in Quebec only represent 1.2% of the total population. That's less than half of the people identifying as First Nation in the rest of Canada at 2.8%. Inuit are 0.2%, which is the Canadian average. Now, Métis, they talk about this huge amount of people identifying as Métis. Well, in 2016, 0.9 of 1% identified as Métis, which is exactly half of the rest of Canada. So, you know, these, these numbers, and numbers can be, I mean, made to look like whatever you want them to look. Has there been uh, an increase in, in, in the Métis or people reporting as Métis in the census? Yes, there has been. How does it look compared to the rest of the population? Well, you know, it, it's, it's, it's still below the rest of Canada. So... I'm not seeing, and I'm not seeing people knocking at my door looking for a Métis card, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm well known in my community as, you know, representing one of the Métis families from here. Uh, I just don't see it. I don't see it. What I do see, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to, I didn't want to cut you off, but I think talking about the numbers, I think it's good for people to recognize that uh, we hear a lot of these numbers thrown around, like there's hundreds of thousands of people in in the you know in Quebec and and Ontario, hundreds of thousands of people trying to enlist and claim Métis identity. But what they don't talk about lots, like I live in Alberta, and on that same last census, there was over a hundred thousand people in the province of Alberta, and there's only four million people that live here. Um, that claim Métis identity on the government status, but yet the official uh, M&A organization has less than, I mean, right around 30,000 members. So I think that the numbers that get thrown around about people claiming Métis identity, especially in Quebec, is, you know, very much a fear-mongering situation. Absolutely, absolutely. And and the fear-mongering has really um, damaged our relationship with the nearby First Nation communities, right? And it's based on fear. It's not based on actual facts. Um, To my knowledge, there's never been any 
quote-unquote land claims done by Métier non-status here in Quebec, uh, what you see are always, um, you know, to, to continue practicing our, our culture. So either harvesting, you know, uh, having our, 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 keeping our camps. Um, I mean, we have ourselves, my family has three camps that are on Indigenous land, which they call crown land here, or provincial parks. And those camps have been there, you know, in since my great-great-grandfather, like on those locations. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of these camps are now being expropriated um, and they fall on the path of the Gazelzuk, which is a uh, proposed uh, pipeline. So, um, you know, the Atikamak and the Inu knew that the camps were there. We followed certain protocols, like my my, my father, in during his lifetime, would go. The conditions were very simple. These camps, and they're not they're not cottages. They're really camps. Uh, we had we left supplies there, canned supplies and whatnot. That was for everybody to use. So even if the First Nation happened to be there and needed shelter, they could go right in. The doors were never locked. Uh, there was supply there in terms of, of water, canned goods, and wood, and oil for lamps and whatnot, and that stayed there. So there was this reciprocity, right, that was understood for hundreds of years. You know, nobody lived there permanently. Uh, it was just a, a shelter for, for when we, we did, you know, we went harvesting. And, you know, in, in my father's lifetime and up until he passed away, that was understood and it was, it was okay. And all of a sudden, well, you know, there's this plan for a pipeline and what do we find out is that, you know, maybe somebody was whispering stuff into the neighboring nation's ears that we were, you know, doing something terrible, right? And, but in the background, there's also a pipeline that's planned to go through. So has, so has this shift in, you know, we, we watched since the last time we talked, this whole uh, race shifting identity discussion from academia. Um, Do you feel in your community that's really largely negatively impacting uh, your relationships and the, and the other Métis in your community's ability to have honest conversations with uh, the First Nations? Absolutely, yes. Um, it will take generations to fix um, to fix the situation now. It, it's... Um, and oh, it, it, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's not based on fact. It's based on a lot of fear-mongering uh, by white academics. Because, that, and I, because I, I think it's important to know, like, has there actually ever been a Métis lands claim case brought forward for Métis or people are trying to actually 
lay claim to territory in Quebec? No, not to my knowledge. And the only, as far as I'm aware, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the only thing that has taken place is Métis communities in Quebec have tried to gain the same status that they have in Ontario and Alberta, and that's through the Powley case. Yes, absolutely. For, for, yeah. historical, for historic community recognition, more or less. Yeah, we want to continue practicing our cultural activities, right? Um, also, it's important to people like, such as myself to be recognized for other Métis. You know, Indigenous government works a lot, governance works a lot based on reciprocity. And, you know, we are mobile people. So, you know, there are Red River Métis that live on Quebec territory. Without Métis communities here being recognized, there's no way we could apply reciprocity towards them and have Red River Métis recognized as being right there once they come to Quebec. Like, it's amazing. It's like the minute you pass the, the, the border between Quebec and Ontario, these people become whitewashed. Red River Métis cross over to Quebec and become whitewashed. What does it mean in actual facts? Well, you can't even walk into a, um, a, a Native Friendship Center, right? So you can't find outlets to, to practice your culture. So it's pretty, it's pretty dire. Like within one generation, Métis identity becomes enfranchised for anybody that uh, comes to Quebec. And that's not right either. I mean, I, I've, I've spoken to so many uh, people that come from the prairies to work or live here that, um, you know, that, that, that find themselves in, the, in this void, right? I mean, even in the media, in Quebec media, if they report on any story, they will report it, quote-unquote, as representing First Nation and Inuit. There's never any word spoken about Métis except to say that there are people that are appropriating Métis identity in Quebec. That's it. That's all. Yeah, it's, it's a government. It's a position not only supported by, by academics. It's an official government position. And I think that's a very different position than a lot of other Métis outside of Quebec and the Maritimes find themselves. You know, if you're in Alberta... The Métis are well-known and it's well-recognized, you know, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and even Ontario. And I think a lot of people who are Métis are unaware of the fact of how hostile um, the provincial government is towards Métis identity. Absolutely, and any Métis identity. And so it makes, right? it, so, yeah, so it, makes it very difficult if the provincial government doesn't even recognize uh, the uniqueness of the Métis identity within its provincial boundaries. How are you ever going to bring forward a case that would be, you know, um, presentable in, in Ontario or Alberta for a historic Métis community? How do you do that inside a provincial context where they don't even acknowledge that as a valid Indigenous identity? Absolutely, yeah. And it's, it's I mean, historically we are mobile people. 
you know, my ancestors fought at um, at. Please, uh, um, I, I just forgot the word. The the. Please, um, I hope you can edit this out. <laughs> Seven Oaks, which, by the way, it took me into my adult life to find out that Seven Oaks is La Grenouille, and in my family at New Year's we always sang the song of La Grenouillette because my ancestors were there at Seven Oaks. And that's how mobile we were. It's not that we went one place and, and stayed there forever. We were, we were very mobile. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of sad that they're trying to reduce our rights to a specific area and assuming that our, our, our descendants, our ancestors, never moved around. Yeah, I think that's a definitely an issue that faces uh, Indigenous people right across Canada, is and, and especially the Métis specifically because of mobility issues, that, that Métis rights are becoming geographically locked. So if you belong to a historic community in Ontario, Alberta, um, your rights are intrinsically tied to that specific community and don't go with you uh, no matter where you move. They can only be exercised within that right. So if you are from, like out here, if you're back from you know, Lac La Biche or something, you can't move to, even outside the province, you can't move from that, you know, and your rights don't follow you. And I think that's been a huge um, error in a lot of the uh, court proceedings that have gone on with Métis issues. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty scary because uh, prior to the Daniels case, we always referred to our contemporary community, right? Um, so that's why we had, you know, in our com- com- contemporary community, we might have had, you know, Métis who who originally came from Nova Scotia or Métis that came from Alberta, and it didn't matter. It's where you lived today. And we saw a subtle shift that's really now become, you know, very solid is they're referring to historic communities. There's not a lot of people who remain in their historic communities. There was mobility of our people. Well, and and that's exactly right. I think in a a day and age where we see more indigenous people becoming um, urbanites living in major centers. We find that their rights don't go with them, and it doesn't matter whether you come off the reserve and into the city for employment or whatever. It's the same issue Métis people face. If you leave that historic community, you lose your right. So if I left yeah. Alberta and I come to Quebec, my my indigenous rights as a Métis person don't follow me. And that that's yeah. an issue that... Again, it's been done by the federal government and provincial levels to reduce its responsibility uh, for its Section 35 rights to Métis people. To all Indigenous people, like you said earlier. And so this this fight is not just a, a Métis fight. It's a fight for all Indigenous people, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and it really smells of, you know, the colonization uh, where, where you know, the, of yesteryear, where, you know, if a person left their, their reserve, if a First Nation person left their reserve, they gave up all their Indigenous rights, right? They self-enfranchised. Uh, 
right? If they, if they wanted to mm-hmm. vote, if they wanted to serve in the military, if they wanted to go to school beyond, you know, what was what was uh, accepted by the the Indian agents, right? I have uh, uh, my grandfather's cousin who was from the Abenaki Nation became the first uh, to graduate university and and found himself automatically uh, enfranchised because of it. So if you go back to to today, what they're trying to do basically is finding new ways of applying what they applied when they set up the reserve system. Yeah, that's exactly right. The the government's desire to solve the Indian problem and resolve the, you know, these claims and reduce its fiduciary responsibilities continually, you know, to implement those same policies. I think a lot of people today, um, simply because we're trying to put food on the table and make it, you know, week to week, miss the greater scope of what's happening to their rights and to their Indigenous identity and its continued enfranchisement. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, it not only affects people that are in a lower economic cycle, but or, or, or not cycle, but uh, uh, parameters. It also affects people that do get educated, because we now know today that you can, as an indigenous person, and you have a responsibility almost to get educated. But often, education will take you off of your territorial land. Uh, off of, you know, and, and bring you somewhere else, right? Um, I see many, many academics that are Métis from Red River that are now living in Quebec that also feel that, that they're losing their their indigeneity almost, you know, because it's it's pegged to where they came from as opposed to where they are today. Well, and I would imagine that would even be more profound if you were coming from out west, where Métis identity is is uh, you know more celebrated, more openly acknowledged, to somewhere like Quebec, where it's more uh, definitely a more hostile, restrictive environment. Yes, very, very much so. You're absolutely right. So, it, so and, and since, since our last interview, we've had uh, a little bit of time to sit on the Daniels case um, and uh, watch some of the things that have rolled out. We've watched the federal government give uh, some of the major organizations like the MNC significant amount of funds to implement programs and services. How is that uh, playing out in Quebec? There's been nothing, really. If anything, there's been an active... Um, endeavor to to get rid of of our identity and not only ourselves because we we always forget we always think of daniels as being the benchmark metis case but it was also a a, a non-status first nation case right Mm -hmm. there were two other respondents in in the original case and so you know the ruling was good for metis but also good for non-status first nation and that was completely, there's zero information circulating about this in the rest of, in Quebec. Like, and, and if anything, uh, there's been a much bigger uh, uh, move towards talking about blood quantum, right? Let's not forget, Pauli uh, was one one twenty eight if you want to look at blood quantum, right? So I don't know how many generations back that goes, but 
now we're hearing discussion, well, this person is neither Métis or, or First Nation because their ancestor was 10 generations ago. Um, you know, and that assumes that there's just one ancestor, right? Because, you know, finding an ancestor or finding the paperwork, we know the ancestors are there, but finding the paperwork is very difficult and very expensive. And most people don't have the funds to do that. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to provide rebuttal against this, against, you know, they completely ignore Daniels, but they've moved the discussion towards, you know, blood quantum. And this is, this is coming from First Nations themselves. You know, we're even getting some backlash about Bill S3. And, and Bill S3, if we remember, it came out of Deschanel, which, was a, which is an Abenaki Nation family. And Lynn Gale, uh, who's a, I believe, Anishinaabe uh, uh, Nation member. And uh, so they've basically removed all sexism going back to uh, the Indian Act, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and that is also, I don't know how it's going on out West, but it's actually hotly contested by several First Nations here in Quebec right now. And why do you, why do you, why do you feel that's being contested so strongly? Oh, that's easy. It's all money, right? Um, that's what I figured. I just wanted to the government. The government made a big effort to saying that millions more may be eligible to be to reclaim their their status, right? But the ruling the the, the ruling didn't follow with money, right? The Supreme Court does not have uh, the jurisdiction to say, well, you got to give them more money. And it's interesting because if we have you know special interest groups uh, that represent a bigger part of population, in colonial terms, they'll get more money. But when it involves indigenous people, it doesn't, right? So you've got a bunch of communities that are already stretched to the limit, financial-wise, that now are worried that there's going to be even more people to service for the little money that they do receive. And I think that's exactly the, the conversation that transposes when we look at the, the Daniels case, how it affects Métis people is that same fear-mongering, is that given the, these um, increases in people self-identifying in Métis is the, in the East, is somehow this is going to um, diminish the amount of funds being given to um, Métis organizations right now. And it always reminds me of that, uh, that um, statement that uh, Belcourt made, and that was that uh, Ottawa isn't a loaf of bread, it's a bakery. And I, I think it's important yeah. for Indigenous people to remember that. But that is the primary way, even today, that the government is forcing Indigenous identity issues into this dangerous, what I feel is a dangerous uh, grounds in talking about blood quantum. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they, they're trying to apply the same concepts that were outlined in the Indian Act, but, you know, without the Indian Act itself. It's a... It's a new way to terminate Indigenous rights. Yeah, because it's going to boil down to, are you, 
are you really Métis enough? Are you really Indian enough to have have? And I think what's what's important to know is they feel that Indigenous rights are a privilege. It's a special thing Indigenous people get that settlers don't get. And so to maintain your privileged identity in being Indigenous, how much are you really? Are you really Indian enough? Are you really Métis enough to exercise those you know, special rights? Yeah, it, it's basically, you know, uh, Trudeau Sr.'s um, white paper that they're trying to apply without without calling it that. Yeah, and it's the same reductiveness. And I, that's why I find this whole conversation of blood quantum, you know, very problematic um, when it comes to these kinds of things because it's it's reductive in nature. And it's really, from what I've seen so far, is really all about uh, fear, like you said, over money and funds. You have a lot of Indigenous communities that are horribly and grossly underfunded as it is right now. And now you're talking, you know, again, fear-mongering about these hundreds of thousands of people who could, you know, potentially become members of your community who, A, maybe don't have historic ties to your community because it's been lost and taken from them. And you don't have the money. So it, it, it's the same conversation that Métis people are having in the East about this rise in numbers. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, there's nothing stronger than fear. And, and I think that everybody is worried about the impact. And you know what? The fact is uh, there's a lot of people that are paid to uh, stir the pot, to make that fear more tangible. Well, and there's there's definitely people out there, uh, both private and in academia, I think that are are cashing in on this uncertainty. Uh, there's there's obvious court cases and court rulings that favor you know things like the Daniels case, which obligates the government through programs and services. We have Section thirty five, but the reality is because of this ongoing colonialism and need to remove the indigenous population, there creates this uncertainty, and it's great for selling books gets you that, uh, you know, tenured at the, the university, you know, helps you in, in your career, I think. And, and it's, it's sad that we allow and continue to support people who are taking advantage of, I think, a volatile situation. Yes. And, you know, the government will always find a patsy uh, who can be attracted by whatever it is that attracts them. Uh, to do their dirty work, right? And that's why, and and this is why uh, the conversation should have or should be held between Indigenous people, for Indigenous people, and bring back a little bit of you know our traditional governance um, rather than rely on 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 these you know these are potential faults. In the sense that if, if, you know, if a white person is allowed to put their foot in the door, right, how long before the door becomes wide open and we find them actually dictating what our governance should be? Well, I think we've seen that from the get-go is that that's exactly what they want. We have chief and council and we have all these different structures that are exactly about controlling how Indigenous people um govern themselves. What I find interesting about a lot of the conversation that's going on uh, from academia in some regards and from some of the well-funded organizations 
is that it's historically, you know, we've always had settlers trying to interpret and, you know, document indigenous families, indigenous communities. And what I find uh, dangerous about what's going on is communities now, uh, Métis communities now, are looking at themselves through the eyes of outsiders. And our history uh-huh. and our communities are being interpreted from that vantage point. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, whether, you're, you're, whether your community is Métis or First Nations or even Inuit, any time we allow something to happen, like, for example, you know, um, wanting um, the MNC, wanting to have a look at the registry of the Métis Nation of Ontario, right? If this is allowed... Right? It becomes precedent. If it becomes precedent, then any organization could potentially go to any First Nation or any community and say, "Hey, show me your paper, show me your 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 registry. I want to see all your members, and I want to vet all your members." Um, that's really dangerous. That's absolutely dangerous to any Indigenous uh, uh, community in Canada. Well, and I think the great challenge is, um, when you look at Ontario's case specifically, is the Métis Nation of Ontario is really in a hard spot is because the MNC has adopted this 2002 restrictive identity issue of who is and who is a Métis, but um, Ontario has communities that are historic. They've passed the Pauli test, as every community has, that is called a historic Métis community, even the ones in Alberta. So they're past the same criteria, but because they fall out of this 2002 definition of what it means to be Métis, all of a sudden the Métis Nation of Ontario is suspect uh, as to who is a member and who is not. And it boils down to the same core conversation is what does it mean to be Métis outside of this 2002 narrative? Correct, correct. Um, it's, it's uh, I mean... If you put a territory, um, you know, the territory, if, if, if they really look at it based on historic community, well, then the only admissible members of the MNC would be the beneficiaries that lived in a teeny tiny little square of Manitoba that was uh, beneficiaries of the Half-Breed Act of 1870. It'd be only these guys. However, we know that it's more than that. We know that they were Métis in the Northwest Territories. We know that some of them made it across the Rockies into B.C. Again, it comes back to the fact that we were mobile people. There was mobility. And I don't know what they used to to draw this, this 2002 map. I, I have no idea. Um, but it's certainly... There are both oral history and empiric proof showing otherwise, right? Yeah, and I think that's what's coming to light, and, and uh, we, you know, we have more books coming out. The fact that the historic Métis communities exist, they exist outside of the Red River narrative, the 2002 uh, Métis National Council definition of what it means to be Métis, and we see these historic evidences, and we see them being brought forward, and I think the general public 
and academia is being slow to warm up to it simply for the fact that we've been on this discussion of reducing uh, the number of Métis people, reducing government uh, responsibility to them, to the Métis people. And it's a very sad way to look, I think, at a vibrant, like you said, highly migratory people. Yes, absolutely. And, well, it's removing... The goal is to remove money, ultimately. But more than that, the result will be a loss of culture, right? Not all Métis want money or need money. All Métis want to be able to continue their their cultural practices. And I don't think that's too much to ask. However, decisions are being made based on how much money they can cut from budgets allotted to Métis people. Well, I think what's very telling from me is what we talked about earlier, is this different ideology that exists between Western Métis and Eastern Métis, and that is that right now there are several uh, Métis land claims in the courts where Métis people are laying uh, actual territorial claims to the to the land, and yet that doesn't actually exist. There's no counter to that in in Quebec or even in the Maritimes. It seems there's almost a a better sense of coexistence between Métis people and you know, First Nations within those territories. Absolutely. I mean, you know, up until recently, there was a reciprocity. There was, you know, a a a an alliance. And, and we see these documents, like as early as 1972, I believe, there was, um, there was an organization here uh, that, that worked together for the betterment of, of all Indigenous people on the Quebec territories. That's significant, and they act as if it never happened, but it did, and we have you know, we have newspaper clips about it. We have like written histories. You know, uh, there was there was a fraternity, an intercultural fraternity, as early, like in 1973, where people worked together. And that's you know, I was alive at that time and and cognizant. I remember this time when all people came together for the betterment of Indigenous people in Quebec. And that's sad that uh, we're losing that. Well, as we're coming up on the hour, um, well, um, and we, we can start to close out here. I, I got one final question for you. Given the environment and, and the hostility right now towards uh, the idea of historic Métis communities in Quebec, moving forward over the course of the next, you know, 12, 18, 24 months, what are some of the biggest challenges you see facing uh, Métis people? in the province of Quebec? Um, well, we're, we're waiting for bated breath for the, uh, the ruling uh, for the, the Métis in Maniwaki. And that's been pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And, uh, you know, it, it gets kicked down to the next election, next election. So we're kind of waiting for that. I believe now the updated trial uh, date is in November of this year, so we're kind of waiting for beta breath, but this is only at a provincial level. 
So, you know, it's very early and, you know, likely a case that's going to wind up in the Supreme Court, whether, you know, the government takes it there or, or the group has the funds to take it there. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I don't see much in terms of, of politics, but I do see beautiful things happening in terms of cultural exchanges uh, between you know, uh, different Métis communities, and that includes Métis communities from out west. Because one of the things that I've noticed is a lot of historic Métis communities in Saskatchewan and Alberta are very interested in doing cultural exchanges with Métis here in Quebec. Uh, those are Métis that, that recognize uh, that their families prior to, to um, the Battle of Batoche were Métis in Quebec whose descendants came uh, came out west. So this is exciting. I'm seeing a lot of, I'm very, very uh, optimistic because I'm seeing, we know about each other now and we're reconnecting uh, with each other and discovering kinship connections that are absolutely phenomenal. So culturally, it's going to be good. Politically, it's going to be, you know, wait and see, obviously. <laughs> well, I would love to see more of the uh, cultural cross-pollination, if you will, that uh, should happen and I think would would be wonderful to continue to promote moving forward. I think there's nothing more important than preserving and promoting and sharing our shared histories. Oh, it's it's so enriching and it's, it's so interesting that, you know, um, for cousins that, that, that stayed out West, it's so interesting to find, you know, that little piece of information that was missing, right? Um, but, you know, I've made wonderful uh, reconnections with, with, you know, extended family um, through this. And I think culture is everything. As long as we can still continue sharing our culture and and um, remembering our connections, uh, it doesn't matter. Governments come and go. Uh, I see the perennity of of the Métis people through that. And I think that's a beautiful way to wind up the conversation. And I uh, I appreciate you coming on the show, Joanne, and taking time out of your busy day to continue the conversation. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, I hope to see you guys this summer or, you know, anytime you can reach me on Facebook, you can reach me on Twitter, you know, let me know if you want to reconnect. I think this is a, a good time to do it. Uh, follow us on Métis Support Group. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to plug our group. We've got, you know, close to 1,700 people that, that share same views and same uh, interest in pursuing our culture. I think that's important. I think that's uh, one of the powerful uses of social media is being able to continue that conversation and reconnect Métis families and communities, uh, you know, and keep our culture alive and vibrant. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, I hope to speak to you again soon. Sounds very good. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show, Joanne, and for all of our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Hope to uh, catch you next time. And for uh, 
me and Darcy, who's not here today. That's it for this show, and the jig is up.